0: You are now listening to the November 2nd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Walking Our Talk, Grace Upon Grace, and Understanding Israel. First, let's begin with Walking Our Talk.
1: Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller. Join our conversation as we discuss practical ways to apply spiritual principles to your everyday life and help you walk your talk one step at a time.
2: Welcome to Walking Our Talk. I'm Alan Heller, and I'm with my wife Polly, and we're talking about discipleship as well as de- being a disciple maker and what it takes but I wanted to read it's a little lengthy but I think it's fun a part of the fellowship of the unashamed I have the Holy Spirit power the die has been cast I have stepped over the line the decision has been made I'm a disciple of Jesus I won't look back, let up, slow down, or back away. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished with how living, sight walking, small planning, some smooth knees, colorless dreams, lamed vision, mundane talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence. Prosperity, position, promotion, or popularity. I don't have to be first. I don't have to be right. I don't have to be recognized. I don't have to be praised, regarded, or rewarded. I live by faith, lean on His presence, walk by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is tough. My companions few. My God reliable. My mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder, at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes. Give till I drop, preach till all I know and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own. He won't have any problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. And I would say the banner over me is love. <laughs> so that's an oldie but goodie. And I think it just talks about the commitment that we need to make to who Christ is.
1: Right, right. Well, it's kind of like, you know, when you say the banner, it makes me think of of your team colors. Mm. You know, when I get so upset when uh, some athlete has played on a certain team for A number of years, for a year or two now. Yeah, I I know it used to be they (laughs) play and they yeah, and then they get traded, and the next thing you know, instead of wearing blue and gold, they're wearing green and white. Or
2: right, and the coach also (laughs) gets fired, (laughs) and he plays for a different team, and the team that he played against, he has players that used to play on that team, so it's a real mess. So
1: you change your colors, and you change your banner, you change your loyalties, but. In Christ, that's not to be. I mm. mean, that's exactly what you're just reading. Your banner stays the same. Your commitment stays the same. Throughout your entire life, you're on the same team. You're on his team, and you keep learning more and more about how he wants you to live, how he wants you to w- walk it out, how he wants you to deal with every situation and um And for me, it's about giving up more of myself, more of my ways, so that his ways and his desires for me become increasingly evident as it's lived out through me.
2: I just want to remind you, we're Alan and Polly Heller, we live in Phoenix, Arizona, and we have a ministry called Walk and Talk. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can Get me by email, alan, A-L-A-N, at walkandtalk.org. So you spell out A-N-D, W-A-L-K, A-N-D, T-A-L-K, dot O-R-G. So don't don't do the other one. (laughs) I'm not even going to say it because people then do it. But if you have any questions, feel free to email us or go to our website, walkandtalk.org.
1: So when we talk about walking your talk, that's what we're talking about is discipleship.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. And we're we're going to concentrate on, we've talked about in the past few podcasts, feel free to go back and listen to them, but uh, we've talked about discipleship. What we want to talk about is what are the ingredients for a disciple maker. And uh, the Navigators, I read an article uh, in their website, and uh, they talk about five marks of a disciple maker, and I won't go in depth in these, but I, I think they're good. Five marks of a disciple maker are five key competencies for a follower of Christ to invest in discipleship. These competencies include a passion to know Christ, knowledge of the scriptures, a desire for community, and a heart for the lost, and the ability to create spiritual generations. So what I hear in there, Paulie, is first of all, there are competencies for a follower of Christ to invest in a person. So I've grown to the point. I am a disciple maker when I take what I've learned and help another do it. And I think in America or the Western side of things, we tend to try and do perfectness. And the disciples, many people were called disciples in Jesus' day, that were only a day old in the Lord. And I remember when I came to know the Lord, I told this story in past podcasts. I was taught by the person who led me to the Lord to lead others to the Lord. And what I didn't know was I was the first person he led to the Lord. (laughs) (laughs) But it was enough to motivate me to go to my best friend and say, guess what? I asked Jesus into my life. I'd like you to know him too. And then I realized I didn't know how to do that. So I went back to my competent guy, who was only one person (laughs) further along than me, and so Mike shared with him, and actually, Ron just rededicated his life to the Lord. But after that, there were people that were coming to know him, and I didn't know the term witnessing, but somebody said, oh, yeah, that's witnessing. (laughs) You know, they were were telling me how to do it, and I, I said, I don't know what you're talking about, but... Three people asked Jesus into their life today. And that it was just because I was so excited. And uh, even though I, I didn't have like this really bad lifestyle or anything, but I, I just was full of him. And it was a very different experience. So five keys. One of them is competency. The other is knowledge of the scripture. I don't think you can be a disciple maker if you don't know Jesus and you don't know his word. Because he says, all scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, in right living. And then the next one was a desire for community. Uh, Christian life cannot be done. Disciple making and being a disciple can't be done alone. And I think many people in the church are isolated and don't have friends. And almost every time when somebody comes into my office, I say, do you have one person that you can confide in and pray with and, you know, can, will call you up if they don't hear from you? And they always say no. And I, I just can't believe that because, again, part of our Christian experience, maybe because we come from Jewish backgrounds and community, was a very big part of our life, all our life, uh, a very tight-knit family and very close um, relatives and people were there for us. In community. So I didn't understand when I first came to know the Lord why people wouldn't have community. And then a heart for the lost, the ability to identify with people who don't know the Lord and go after them. And the ability to create spiritual generations. That's 2 Timothy 2 2, which says, Teach faithful men who will teach others also. And so at this time of my life, that's been sort of my banner cry and trying to think of myself that it's not just sharing my faith with somebody, it's sharing my faith and my life to the point that they want to share their faith and life with others also.
1: Yeah, it has to be transferred to the next generation and encouraging that generation to transfer it to to the generation after them. And If we're not doing that, then we're really failing in our mission. I might be able to recite endless psalms and scriptures um, by rote because I have them all memorized. But if I haven't applied the meaning of that word to my life, I'm not doing what what it's meant to do in my life in terms of, purifying me and guiding me in the way that I live. And at the same time, if I'm not passing along that truth to somebody else, I'm failing to carry out the wishes of the person who I say is my Lord. And as as my Lord, that doesn't just mean that he's God. That means that he is my Master, He's the one who is giving me direction. He's the one who is giving me directives and telling me, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to live. And I'm not carrying out his wishes if I'm not telling somebody else about him and leading others to him and helping them to walk it out in their own lives.
2: Well, what 1 Corinthians says in terms of love is when i was a child i reasoned like a child and when i became a man i put away childish things behind me for now we see in a reflection a mirror then we'll see face to face now i know in part then i will know fully and it says faith hope love these three the greatest is love but he says if you're not you you could give your body to be burned And if you don't have love, you're a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Right, right. And so the bottom line is love, but how does love get worked out? And so we'd like to talk about some practical things in terms of how that works out in a relationship with a disciple maker. How do I become a disciple maker? My definition is one who comes alongside a person to help them become an obedient disciple through an environment of love and grace and accountability." So, for me, an environment of love means that I'm accepted. He says we are accepted in the beloved, in Ephesians. And so, I need, the people that helped me the most as disciple makers, when they were discipling me, sort of <laughs> let me, I remember, uh, Joe Webb gave me this assignment. He was one of the first people, besides the guy who led me to the Lord, who just said, get in the book of John and read it. And so, within an hour, I read the book of John, and he told me, if you have any questions, come up and see me. So, I came right up and said, I got some questions about this. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that, that was part of my discipling. But then, Joe, he, uh, around the second year of working with me, gave me an assignment for this Uh, there was this pro football player that was going to give a great talk at the end of the week and I was in charge of PR, the public relations for this thing. I am so bad at PR and um, I tried to tell Joe that but he didn't believe me. (laughs) So I think he was thinking I'm going to give this guy, a kid, a responsibility so that maybe he'll do it and maybe he won't Uh, and I I did it, but I was a miserable failure. I put little tents on all the tables in the beverage center, and I uh, passed out flyers and everything, but nothing happened, and Mm -hmm. I I just came like a whip puppy with my tail between my legs coming to Joe to meet him at the beverage center, which was the gathering place, and I just said, Joe, man, I, I just blew it. I just, this is not, I don't do a good job at this. I mean, I don't remember exactly what he said, but basically he said, hey, those things happen. We'll work it out, and let's keep going. Mm. But that acceptance was on a level that touched me greatly because I was used to if you don't pass and do it right, you're a failure, you're wrong. And then I get beat up for it emotionally, both myself and from
1: Well, h- here's the thing. You're talking about love and grace and acceptance that because Joe accepted you you were able you he gave you the freedom to fail but then you've also got accountability mm. love and grace and accountability so how how does accountability work along with grace like if if you're giving somebody the freedom to fail and the freedom to to not do things right, how do you hold them accountable? What kinds of things do you hold them accountable for?
2: Right. I mean, it could be as simple as giving them a reading assignment. You need to read the first chapter of John. Or, I mean, even this week I had a couple of guys that I am working with in discipling. And I said, I just asked, did you read the chapter for the week? And after some fumbling around, one of them (laughs) said, well, I've been working on the house and I've been, you know, no. So I said, well, let's just read it as we go. So this time I'll read it. But then after we are done with the lesson, I'll say next week I expect you to have the lesson done, that that's our commitment to grow Mm -hmm. and to be. And I think there's just like Jesus did with Peter. He he called Peter, he was a little pebble, but then he became, um, he was Petra and then Petras, and he was on this church, I, on the testimony of what Peter said, he built his church. And so he had a vision for who Peter was. And every time I was taught early in my uh, discipling uh, experience, every time you see somebody who you're working with and you choose them and they, say they're going to work with you then have a vision for the future of who they can be not who they are and so part of that is letting them mess up without getting angry and and saying i'm done with you and caring enough to help them actually out of it there are people that can't do something and there are people that don't want to do it, mm-hmm. and the only way you find that out is by actually doing things with them, which is why you can't do discipleship on the computer. You can get knowledge and information from a podcast or a video or a sermon, and those are wonderful things, but discipleship doesn't happen in a vacuum of just knowledge, growing grace and knowledge of the truth, and some of that's intellectual in the Hebrew. Um, the the whole idea of keeping obedience is doing it and not just talking about it. Mm -hmm, And so mm -hmm. at some point in your discipleship, you have to be involved with somebody in their life. When I go to a, I'll say, can I come to your work? And a guy will go, why do you want to come to my work? Mm -hmm. And I won't always tell him exactly why, but I'll just say, I just want to be, see what you do you you spend eight hours doing this stuff you tell me about it but i can't figure out what you do so would it be okay and in some places they don't let you in most eighty percent of the workplaces they'll just let you follow somebody around as long as you don't get in the way and so i learn a lot about how he deals with people how he looks at himself how he does his work if he's afraid to even have me come to work or have me come to his home I mean, you can learn a lot about somebody by just going in the front door and sitting down and have a cup of coffee. Just look at the walls, look at how—I mean, I got into one guy's car the other day, and, man, the thing was overflowing with all kinds of litter. I mean, it looked (laughs) like— Uh, who's the guy on Sesame Street? Uh, oh, uh, Oscar, Oscar the, the grouch. grouch. Yeah, he like, hey, garbage hey man, come on in yeah. here, you know. And, and I, what I did, because I don't want to mess up my trust with the relationship, I didn't say a word. I just <laughs> moved things. I mean, I thought I was messy until I went into here. But, I mean, there were things on the floor, things on the seat, and I just moved them and just we kept talking. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. those are practical ways that you – you overlook but you you circle around. I also am getting together with this guy not to talk about the messiness because I think that's just a symptom of a busy mind that is going on to the next thing and and so we have other things that we're right. gonna address.
1: But if messiness is an issue in his life and is creating problems in his life. We and would work it's, on that one. It's a symptom of a, a certain amount of disorder in his life. And you're giving him assignments. Look, I want you to work on this. Then you need to, you're holding him, Hold him accountable. Holding me accountable means
2: you say, How is it going with, or what can I do to help you, or who can I get to help you? It doesn't, right. one of the things about being a disciple or is you don't have to do it all. Many times I'll call a friend and I'll say, I have not gone through the drug addiction and alcoholism this person has, but you have and you've beat it. Could you meet with him for coffee? And some of those times are great. And I learn more about the guy that I referred him to if I'm in on the meeting, all of a sudden I get a whole different picture because he's talking about how Jesus transformed his life. Mm -hmm. So circling back, asking questions of your disciple, is very key and this time has gone so fast we're going to do one more uh one more session or two on being a disciple maker keeping people accountable working with them in an environment of love and grace and accountability which means you're loving them you're doing what they need not what they want i hope you're walking your talk and we'll see you next time
1: this has been Walking Our Talk with Alan and Pauli Heller, where we put into action those principles we know from God's Word, one step at a time. You can find more help at our website, walkandtalk.org.
0: Next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary PHX in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is, When Jesus Passes By. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark.
3: Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We're studying Mark's Gospel, and we are going verse by verse through it, but... What I've decided to do is to take all the miracles of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to look at all of them, take them one by one. Then we're going to go and we'll look at all the teaching portions, things Jesus taught in the Gospel of Mark, and then we'll look at what it has to say about Jesus' death, the final week of Jesus. So that's the plan. So join us now at Mark chapter 6. We're going to start with verse 45 just want to say this. I think it's so cool that you have your Bible with you. Amen. Now, one of the... There are two philosophies right now going around. There might be guests come to church and they won't have a Bible, so we don't want anybody to feel weird, so we just... Nobody brings their Bible and we'll just put the Bible passages on the screen. That's one approach, and that's okay for that. But then the other approach is that Somebody who is a guest for the first time, they see us using the Bible, and we realize we love the God of the Bible, and we love yeah. the Bible because it speaks the Word of God, and then they get a hold of the Scriptures, and they learn from the Bible itself. So when that's what we do, and to hear all those pages turning, I've had people listen to our radio broadcasts. And they said, you know what, the coolest thing is we can hear on radio, we can hear the pages turning when you give a reference, and I thought, that is really cool, it really is. And you have your Bible page app, and it sounds like a Bible flipping, that's really cool, I like that too. Okay, Mark chapter 6, let's dive in, verse 45, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they, the disciples, were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, that's 3 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and he said, Take heart, it is I. do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. We'll stop right there. Matthew, Mark, and John record this miracle. They record this incident. Matthew and our gospel here in Mark give more depth to the miracle. They say more about it. So now, just to get our bearings, this is two years into Jesus' ministry. He's gone around ministering around the Sea of Galilee twice. This is beginning his third time. With his healing ministry and his preaching and raising some from the dead, delivering people who are demon-possessed, He's made a huge impact on those 200 plus towns that are around the Sea of Galilee. And just about the point that you think his popularity couldn't get any better, uh, there's a crowd of 5,000 that we just looked at last week. That was only the men, they only counted older guys, so some estimate it could be 20 to 25,000 people that were gathered with him, and they were hungry, and Jesus took the little bread and the little fish that were brought to him, and he multiplied the bread, and he multiplied the fish, and fed those twenty to 25,000 people. He fed them so much that it says they were all filled and satisfied, and there were how many baskets left over? Anybody remember? Twelve baskets left over. That's right. So that kind of sets the tone, but you also got to understand that there is this messianic anticipation that people have. What's that? The people were excited about a Messiah coming who would save them from their enemies, would save them from the occupation that they had been enduring for hundreds of years. You see, at this time, the Romans were controlling their land. And so the Romans were, you know, they imposed their legal system and all. They were in control. Before that, it was the Greeks. and Before that, somebody else. They hadn't had freedom in a long time. But the scripture says that the Messiah would come and he would set Israel free and establish his earthly kingdom. So they were looking forward to that. By the way, they didn't read the parts that said the Messiah would come, part A, and he would die for the sins of the world and be raised from the dead. They didn't really see that part. All they saw was part B. So the people were looking for a Messiah, somebody who could deliver them from their enemies. And guess what? Here's this Jesus guy, and look at him. The crowds love him. We're told the crowds love to hear him teach. He was charismatic. He was likable. He was a leader. even came from the royal line of David, okay? So he's the one. I mean, let's say you got a battle, but he's taking care of food supplies, right? Don't have to worry about that. He can just make as much food as you need. If somebody gets wounded in battle, what? He heals them. If somebody dies, raises them to life. He's the one. It got so crazy that Matthew's gospel tells us that they were about to take him by force and make him their king. Isn't that something? Think about it. How many people have tried to force upon themselves to be king? You know, I'm going to try by force to be king. Uh, but Jesus would have nothing to do with that. Problem was, some of his disciples are starting to become kind of swept up with all of that. Two of his disciples had asked him, hey, can I sit at one side of your throne and my brother sit at the other side of your throne when you establish your kingdom? Another of them, named Simon, he was a zealot. Zealots were like freedom fighters. The Romans would call them terrorists. And Simon, one of the disciples, I'm sure he was getting on the bandwagon too, yeah, you could be the one to set us free and establish the kingdom of God on this earth. They weren't understanding that Jesus had come to die. He His mission was not to establish an earthly kingdom, yet his mission was to come and die for the sins of the world, fulfill the prophecies, and rise from the dead and the uh, possibility of salvation for those who would believe in him. The disciples just didn't understand the whole story. They didn't get it. Well, the disciples were ignorant of Jesus' purpose and plan. And so Jesus knew he needed to get them out of there and get them out of there fast. And so that's where we pick it up here in verse 45. It says, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd. Did you ever notice the maid? He didn't ask. He didn't send. It says Jesus. What gang? Let me hear it. Maid. The word is anakadzo. And it means to force. To insist. It means to demand. There was no option. They didn't have a word in the matter. End of discussion. Get in the boat. Go very serious, and they got in the boat and left. Jesus didn't want them around this anymore. He didn't want them to catch it, you know. So once the disciples were a safe distance away, Jesus broke up the crowd, and we were told that Jesus went up to the mountain to pray. As we move forward, look at verses 47 and on. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and Jesus was alone on the land, And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. I want to look at the rest of this account, and I want to, of course, explain how it applies to the disciples. But I also want to make application for ourselves, okay? So the first thing I see is that Jesus, unbeknownst to them, Jesus saw them. They had no idea that Jesus was on the mountain, and he saw what they were going through. How could he see them? Well, there's one point, Mount Ebal, you can go to it in, around the Sea of Galilee there, and you, it's the highest point, I think that's probably where Jesus was, on a clear day, a clear night, you could see anything on the lake, okay? So how could he see them if it's night on the lake? Because the other gospels say it was Passover, And if you know anything about Passover, at night the moon is huge, okay? It's a super big, bright, full moon. So it doesn't say anything about rain or clouds. It was just wind. And so he could see them out on the lake. The problem with the Sea of Galilee is it's normally very placid, but geography of the lake makes it so that it can be kind of like the mountains around it be like a wind tunnel, and that water can go from placid to just boiling In a matter of minutes. So it wasn't a storm, it was wind, and he could see the disciples from that vantage point, a strong wind blowing. Matthew's gospel says it was a megaloo wind. We get the word mega, it was a very strong wind blowing, and he saw their trouble. He saw them struggling out there. It means to be tormented, to struggle. They were rowing hard against the wind, struggling. At its widest, the lake is only 11 miles wide. They've only gotten three miles out there and they've been out there nine hours. That's crazy, isn't it? Nine hours and you've only gotten three miles because they were rowing against the wind. I'm going to take a little side right here and I'm going to say I admire them for that. How about you guys? I admire them. I mean, come on. Jesus would get in the boat and go, nine hours later, their biceps, their triceps, their forearms, their everything has got to be so tired, they're burning, and yet they're keeping at it because Jesus told them to do it. They're not going to stop, and I'm going to tell you, the world needs Christians like that too, amen? These Christians who are going to do what Jesus tells them to do, we're not going to stop until Jesus tells us to stop. We're going to persist, even through opposition. Some of you have that opposition. But you haven't been nine hours on the lake. You haven't reached your limit. When you've reached your limit, Jesus knows when that is. Jesus will come and he'll take care of that. So their trials, I mean, that storm was driving them to their limits. Jesus, though, saw they were having trouble. Jesus, think about this, Jesus in his high place on the mountain looks down and he sees what's going on. He sees nothing. Application, Jesus sees us in his high place. Where is Jesus right now? He's in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And the Bible tells us that he sees what's going on. There's nothing in your life right now that he isn't seeing and that doesn't escape his view. You're so cared for by Jesus. What's the tough thing you're dealing with right now? I want you to know Jesus sees that. The second thing the disciples didn't know but was happening was Jesus was in that high place and he was praying for them. We're told that he went up to the mountain to what? Pray. So Jesus was up there and he was praying. And obviously when you see your disciples on the lake and there's been nine hours and they're still struggling, you're going to be praying for them. Right now, the Bible tells us, Hebrews chapter 7, Jesus is praying for us. Romans 8, 1 John 2. Jesus is praying for you right now. Look, people say, some people seem to be praying and their prayers are just answered like that. My wife is a prayer warrior. Leslie prays and God just answers. It's amazing, really. So, and she'll say, I'm praying for you and God hears my prayers. That's what she says. I'm praying for you, and God hears my prayers. And she'll pray. I'll be studying, for instance. I don't know. Putting stuff together like this, it might seem easy. It's not. I mean, for one thing, you're in front of so many people. Do you know what? The number one fear among people is speaking in front of people. Did you know that? The second is death, which means if your funeral and you're speaking you would really rather be in that coffin than standing up talking about the person who died. Isn't that funny? So anyway, I'm putting it together and sometimes it's just like it's not happening. I'm confused. I'm all over the place. And all of a sudden it'll look like I'm in my study and I'll holler. honey, are you praying for me? Yes, I just prayed for you. I mean, it's just like beam it on me, Lord, you know, whatever. Well, Jesus is praying for us. And do you think God hears Jesus' prayers? Somebody tell me. Yes. Yes. God hears Jesus' prayers. He hears his prayers, and his prayers are answered. So he's in the high place. He sees his disciples. He's on the high place, as Jesus is, and he sees us. Jesus sees us. He's praying for us. And then the third thing the disciples are going to see is Jesus is going to come to them. Look at verse 48. And about the fourth watch of the night, three a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought he was a ghost, and they cried out, for they were all saw him and were terrified. They thought he was a ghost. The word for ghost is phantasm. We get our word phantom from that, of course. They thought he was a ghost. The common superstition was the spirits of the night would bring disaster. I don't know that these religious guys would be into superstition, but come on. It's scary. The Greek word is anakrazo. Say that. Anakrazo. It sounds like shrieking. They were scared to death. But Jesus didn't let them panic for long because when they were terrified, immediately, verse fifty, last part of verse fifty, he said to them, "Take heart! It is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart." The word "take heart" means uh, to uh, go on, charge on. It was a term the commander would use when he was in the middle of the battle to encourage his armies. Hang in there. Move forward. So, Take heart. Don't fear. How many times in the Bible are we told not to fear? Don't fear. Don't be afraid. Are you afraid? Panicky right now? Your job, your kids, your personal situations? Isaiah 41, verse 10. It's amazing. God says, don't panic. I'll read it first from from ESV. Don't be afraid for I'm with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. Let me read it one more time. Just catch this. Don't be afraid. Why? For I'm with you. God is with me. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. The New Living Translation says, don't panic. I love it. Don't panic. God says, don't panic. I'm with you. Don't panic. I'm with you. There's no need to fear for I'm your God. I'll give you strength. I'll help you. I'll hold you steady and keep a firm grip on you. How many of you need to hear that? Need to hear that? You know, Jesus speaks to us in our storms. And sometimes it's hard to recognize the Lord in the middle of a sermon. The, the disciples didn't really realize, oh, that's the Lord. And they didn't recognize him at first. But the Lord is coming to them. Jesus said, "It is, don't be afraid. It is I. You see that? End of verse 50. It is I. Now, I have a lot of Bible translations and Bible translations, you can't say one is wrong and the other is better. I mean, usually it's, it's the way they are, they're thinking about how to translate a language, whether it's going to be literal, word for word, or more like if our Spanish translators are translating right now, and they're not word for word saying what I'm saying because it wouldn't be right in Spanish. And so they're kind of they're going with a more dynamic translation, though it's, this, it's not going against what I'm saying. So some translations are done that way. Anyway, the problem, the thing I wish translations would do is translate it is I differently. It doesn't say it is I. Translate it that way because they're thinking, well, if we translate it exactly what it says, people might not get it. So they translate it, it is I. Why is it not exactly what it says? Jesus says, take heart. It is I. Don't be afraid. Take heart. In Greek, he says, ego, A me." Don't be afraid. Ego, A me" simply means "I am." Take heart, I am." Don't be afraid. What? Same thing in John, Gospel of John, often Jesus will say, "I am." And translators will say, "He." Like Jesus says, "Before Abraham was I am." But the translators say, I am he, because they think, I am. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Why would Jesus say, Take heart, I am? Because he is showing his disciples that he is God. He is God the Son. How does I am do that? Back in the book of Exodus, the story is that you'll remember the story that God is going to deliver the children of Israel. From Egyptian bondage. They're going to go through the Red Sea. You know, God's going to part the Red Sea. And He's going to use Moses as the man to lead the people. But before Moses goes, He's going to have to introduce Himself to the children of Israel, tell them what God wants to do. And so Moses and God are having this discussion. And this comes up. Moses says, Well, they're going to ask me who sent me. And so, what I'm going to tell them? What's your name? What shall I say? And God says, This is my name. I am that I am. That's his name. And he goes on to say, this is going to be my name throughout all the generations with the children of Israel. So every Jew, our problem is, we're not ancient Jews, right? Our problem is, we're distanced from the Old Testament. This is why understanding our Old Testament helps us understand the New. You see that? That's why it's important to compare Old and New Testament. So Jesus says Take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. He is telling his disciples, I am God. Amen? I mean, who else walks on water, right? Only God walks on water. How do we know that? Well, Jesus is actually fulfilling another thing. I want you to look at Job chapter 9. So you're going to go to the left in your Bible. And you just keep going back. You're going to go through a big book, Ezekiel. You're going to go back to Jeremiah, Isaiah, Isaiah. And then you're going to go to the book of Job, chapter 9, verse 8. See, all of this is tied together. We're supposed to know this. And so the disciples would know all of this because of the Old Testament is their Bible, they would have known this. So in Job, chapter 9, look at verse 8. God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. The New Living Translation says, he, that's God alone, has spread out the heavens and he marches on the waves of the sea. What is Jesus doing as he's going out to the disciples? What's he doing, gang? He's marching. The waves are just giving him traction. All right, more waves. I trample on the waves. Jesus is who? God. He's doing what only God can do. Look at Psalm. Now you go to the right. Psalm 89, look at verse 9. You rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise you what? Still them. Okay, what happened before this? There was another storm wasn't there. This one had rain and waves and the disciples were crying out, Jesus was in the boat with them and they said, "Lord, you know, wake up, don't you care that we're perishing?" And Jesus stood up and he quieted He stilled the winds and the waves. He said, hush, shish, be still. Everything stopped instantly. Well, that's exactly a God thing to do. You understand. It says, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you what? Still them. Peace, be still, is what Jesus said. Jesus intended to reassure his disciples And that's exactly what he did. Jesus delivered his disciples. I want us to look at a few more passages. Look at John's account, this very same instance. Look at John chapter 6, and look at verse 20. This is one of those things. There's a couple of things here in this incident that I've always scratched my head, and I thought, why does it say that, and what's the big deal? You know, What does it mean? So verse 20 and 21, look. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Okay, that's interesting. Interesting, miracle number one, Jesus walked on the sea. Miracle number two, he sat in the boat, and immediately the storm stopped. And then, miracle number three, they are instantaneously transported to where they needed to go. It doesn't say and they rode, you know, safely. It says immediately, boom, they're where they needed to go. Thus fulfilling Psalm 107. That's a God thing to do too. Look at Psalm 107, you might want to write that right there by that verse. Go back to Psalm 107. Should I sorry, I didn't have you hold your place. Psalm 107 and look at verse 28. It's talking about being in a storm, okay? It says they staggered in verse 27. Like drunken men, they were at their wits end. And verse 28, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. Look at 29, he made the storm be still. What did Jesus say? Peace, be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. What did Jesus do? He stopped the waves and immediately he brought them to their desired haven, didn't he? He fulfilled, he did the Psalm 10 thing, God thing right there too. Jesus will deliver us. He went out to deliver the disciples and Jesus will deliver us as well. Take courage. Now, going back to home base, let's go back to Mark chapter 6. There is a part of this story that troubles a lot of people and it troubled me for quite a while. For a long time, I didn't get it. It was one of those, I read the passage and, you know, oh, I don't really understand that, but you just read on. And, and every time you read it, I don't know what that means, but you just read on. You know there's places in the Bible like that. Verse 48 says, uh, again, I know we've read it like three times, and seeing them straining at the oars, the wind was against them, he came to them walking on the sea. And this is a crazy thing. And he intended to pass by them. Other versions say... He intended to go right by them. Another say, he wanted to pass them. Why is this emphasis? It doesn't seem very nice, right? And I used to think for years, why would Jesus even consider just walking right past them when they were in trouble? You know, he's praying for them. and like, hey, guys, well, God bless you. Take care, you know. Why? I don't understand. I mean, really, I didn't understand. One is that Jesus was just messing with the disciples. Not really, No, that's not it. The other was, Jesus was walking across the lake. He just wanted to go across the other side, and then he notices, ooh, they're in trouble. (laughs) Now, that breaks down, doesn't it? Because he already saw them when he was on the mount praying for them. So that's not right. Another one is, truly, these are real interpretations. One is that Jesus was trying to sneak by the disciple, and they saw him. Jesus is not going out to rescue the disciples. They are not in mortal danger. It's not like it was when their boat was swamping and they were crying out, "God, don't you care that we're perishing?" No, they're not saying anything like that. They're fishermen. They've been in situations like this. Usually, they would have turned back and you know just gone back. But Jesus said, "Go." So they're you know like we said, they're persisting, but their lives are not in any mortal danger. Jesus isn't going out to rescue them, all right? Jesus is doing a God thing. It's a God thing to do what he was doing. It's a God thing to pass by. What do you mean? Well, in the Old Testament, it speaks about God passing by, and it's talking about God's glory going by people. Okay, two people in particular God passed by. One was Moses, and the other was Elijah, I want us to look at what God did with Moses in Exodus chapter 33. Genesis, Exodus, the second book of the Bible. Look at chapter 33. The quick setup. Moses is on the mountain. God had given him the law. Moses, God, we're having great fellowship. And Moses had a very special request. Chapter 33, verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory, what, passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you in, with my hand until I have, what, passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. Actually, it says in Hebrew, my afterglow. But my face shall not be seen. God says the same thing to Elijah on the same mountain in the same cave. Hundreds of years later, He says, go in that cave and I will pass by. And the Lord's glory goes by. You see, it has nothing to do with Jesus going to walk by his disciples because he didn't care about them. This is a God thing. Jesus is displaying his glory just like God in the Old Testament displayed his glory with Moses. The only difference is Moses couldn't look at his face and live. But Jesus comes and he is God in the flesh and Jesus reveals the Father to us and we can see when we see Jesus, we've seen the Father and we can look into the face of Jesus and live. Amen? Isn't this awesome? I love it. I finally understood it. When God passes by, he's showing his glory. He's revealing his glory. And Jesus did that. I am the I am. I am The God, God the Son, who walks on the water. I'm God the Son who marches on the water. I'm God the Son who commands the waters to be quiet, that stops the seas, stops the raging storms. I'm the God who multiplies the bread. I'm the one who has power over demons in hell. I am that I am. I'm your Savior. And it's interesting that the greatest part of God's glory in Exodus He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. What was Jesus' ministry all about? He is proclaiming who God is. I will proclaim before you my name. And Jesus' whole ministry, I'll be gracious, I'll show mercy. Let's summarize. What do we learn? Number one, Jesus sees us. Every single thing you're going through. Jesus prays for us. Jesus will come to you. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And Jesus will deliver us. He will deliver us just like he delivered those disciples. And we're seeing his glory and his love and his grace. Amen. Let's pray. We're grateful, Lord, for the time we've shared together in your word. We're thankful that you explain yourself, that Jesus describes you to us. And if we know him, we know you. Thank you for our salvation and the love that you have placed in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said...
4: Who I am, it's who I
5: Ministries awaits for your participation for listeners' survey. Your opinion is highly valued. All gathered information will be for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries. It will go towards our ministry's efforts to share the gospel. You may participate by completing the questionnaire survey delivered to your address or go online at www.heartandsoul.org. Our return address for paper survey is 12802 North 28th Drive, Phoenix, Arizona, 85029. This survey ends November 15th. We wait for your participation and thank you for your input.
0: Coming up next is Understanding Israel.
6: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another program in our series, Understanding Israel. I am your host, Susan Holtgrew. So far, we have learned about three very important feasts on the Jewish calendar, the history of these feasts, and how we as Christians view these feasts today. This week, we will be studying the next feast, which in Hebrew is called Shavuot, and in English means the Feast of Weeks or in ancient Greek, Pentecost. Last week, we learned about the Feast of first fruits, and I briefly mentioned that the Feast was also used to calculate the Feast of Pentecost. So let's go to the book of Leviticus and learn this feast's history. The book of Leviticus is, for the most part, a book of the law, and is one of the first five books the Jews call, in Hebrew, the Torah. God speaks with Moses regarding offerings and sacrifices and the priest's role during these rituals. Aaron and his sons are consecrated as holy priests during this time as well. God also speaks to Moses about laws concerning clean and unclean animals, dealing with leprosy, the law of atonement, which is another feast we will study at a later time, and other miscellaneous laws and rules for priests. Now we are up to chapter 23 in Leviticus, and God was speaking with Moses about celebrating the Feast of first fruits in verses 9 through 14, and in verses 15 and 16, God said, You shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh sabbath then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord In other words in order to celebrate Shavuot you had to count 7 weeks after the day of the sabbath of the passover then the next day the 50th day would be Shavuot or Pentecost remember The Jewish Sabbath is from sundown Friday evening to sundown Saturday evening. The next day is Sunday. Then God explains how the bread should be made for the wave offering, the animals for the burnt offering, and then the priests wave the bread and the lambs before the Lord to be holy to the Lord for the priests. As a side note, a wave offering was done top to bottom, side to side which was to represent the layout of the twelve tribes of Israel around the tent of meeting, as described in Numbers chapter 2. And what God saw as he looked down from heaven was the shape of a cross, their future Messiah. Now let's move into the New Testament. Jesus was crucified and died on a cross on Passover, and was resurrected on the first day of firstfruits. Jesus appeared to the disciples many times during a 40-day period, and in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Luke wrote, Gathering them together, he, Jesus, commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, which would be ten days later on the day of Shavuot. Then Jesus ascended to heaven, and the disciples returned to Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, Luke writes, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting and there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now let's put it all together. According to Sam Nadler from the website Word of Messiah, he writes, For the traditional Jewish community, Shavuot was first celebrated around the time of receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai, about fifty days after leaving Egypt. Therefore Shavuot is called the season of the giving of the law. It is also considered the spiritual birthday of Israel since the Torah brought twelve tribes together into one corporate people. From Shavuot's fulfillment in Acts, we can also call it the season of the giving of the Spirit since the Holy Spirit makes all believers from many tribes into one family in Messiah. Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, depicts the events in Acts chapter two as a second Mount Sinai experience. When the law was given, there was fire and noise as God descended on Mount Sinai. When the Spirit was given, there was fire and noise as well. The rabbi's comment in the Talmud that when the Torah was given at Mount Sinai, every single word that went forth from the Omnipotent was split up into 70 languages for the nations of the world. When the Holy Spirit was given, men from every nation spoke in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. In Acts chapter 2, verse 5, Luke writes, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. This true fulfillment of Shavuot is also depicted in contrast to when the Torah was given at Mount Sinai. While the people waited for Moses to return down from the mountain, an almost incredible chain of events began to transpire. Mr. Nadler goes on to explain how the people gave up on Moses and asked Aaron to make them a golden calf to worship. And in Exodus chapter 32, verses 26 through 28, we read... Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from the gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Mr. Nadler concludes, 3,000 people died at the giving of God's righteous and holy law. What a difference when Shavuot was fulfilled and the Holy Spirit was given. We read in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, So then those who had received his word were immersed, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. When the Spirit was given, there was 3,000 people redeemed and made spiritually alive in Messiah. The law reveals sin that condemns us, but the Spirit reveals the Savior who saves us. In closing, we have now looked at four feasts that God gave to the Israelites, and we have seen them fulfilled in Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Next week, we will begin to look at feasts that God ordained that have yet to be fulfilled in Jesus, but we as Christians look forward to, and I look forward to sharing them with you. God bless you all, and goodbye.